0: Welcome to another episode of Inside Infrastructure. I'm Adrian Dwyer and I'm joined as always by my co-host Ilya Zak from series sponsor PwC Australia. Ilya, how are you going? Well, Adrian, thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm good, Ilya, and I'm particularly excited about our guest for today's episode, Secretary of Transport for New South Wales, Rod Staples. I've known Rod for many years and he's always commanded a great deal of respect from anyone who's worked with him. We spoke to Rod in June and were able to cover a wide range of topics with him as we always aim to do. So it should be very interesting for anyone looking to learn what's going on in the sector. So here he is, Rod Staples. Uh, Rod Staples, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Adrian. Um, now, Rod, you are Mr. Metro in many ways. Um, you've been working on the recently opened um, Northwest part of the Metro for best part of a decade. How does it feel now it's up and running?
1: Oh, it's a big relief, big relief. Uh, really proud, really proud to think that you know, as part of your career, you get to work on something as profound as that for so long and be a part of it.
2: How long has it been?
1: Depends where you measure it from. Um, Technically, I, under this project, it was 2011, really early 2011. So,
2: But all the various iterations yeah, of it you've been. Yeah, so
1: 7th of April 2011, if you want to get specific on this project. Um, but if you go back actually 2007, uh, I was working in a little organisation then called Ministry of Transport, which is you know three or four generations before the organisation I now run. And we had a little planning unit that came up with a concept of Metro. Um, and we decided, you know, with government that we go and really work on it. So I followed the Metro out of the organization into a new Metro entity. The, the um, Sydney Metro. <clears> throat> Sydney throat> Metro. And it went through uh, a couple of iterations under the government of the day, uh, right into the 21st of February, 2010, uh, when that government decided that they didn't want to proceed, they wanted to reprioritize and um, cancel that project. So I was there for that. And then, Yeah. Uh, filled in some time in between before I got the, the gig in 2011 to step in. So, yeah, it's been a big part of my life, uh, but not just for me. I've actually got a group of people that have worked on Metro right through that time as well.
0: I think that's quite striking, actually, just as an aside. As you look at the Metro entity now, there are a lot of people that have got the experience of having taken something from, you know, an idea through to completion and now uh, forming the start of a broader network. So there's a lot of – um corporate knowledge and alike like in that entity
1: now yeah if you if you asked me in sort of april 2011 you know what's the future look like um it's not where we are today by any means i can't claim to have been the visionary at that point in time that this is where we go it's been probably more incremental steps and the opportunities that presented themselves and we've always you know gone for the the tougher option but the one that's going to be more transformative uh, along the way. So I think by 2013, a couple of years in, when we'd really pushed the whole Northwest Rail Link as it was around, um, we threw it out to the community and said, tell us what you think. And they did. They were pretty brutal. They didn't like what we put out there. We put it out to industry. Tell us what you think. And they did. They were pretty brutal as well. Um, so by the time we'd shaken it with that input, uh, as well as tested ourselves, you know, our technical people, it was really different. Uh, went from a, you know, an extension of our existing rail to essentially a, a whole new system and the foundation of what is now a, a network that we're going to see roll out um, in the years ahead in Sydney.
0: And you got the chance to take the family up there and, and have a go on it <coughs> on the opening day? Or?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, three kids, uh, 9, 11 and 12, uh, the nine-year-old, uh, he was only just born when I started on it. So all three of them really, they only know me as running a metro. They don't think I'm actually about anything else. That's that's what I do. That's what dad does all the time. Um, so, yeah, it was cool, really cool to take them out. Uh, they've been a part of the journey. They hear the stories, uh, gone to their schools and talked to me. You know, you have those sort of dad goes to school and talks about his job type stuff. I got you know had some great stories to tell, hard hats, TBM and stuff like that at school. So um, to actually get them out and – Touch it, feel it, get, be a part of the excitement with uh, the kids and my wife was yeah. Uh,
2: I was on there on the first day that uh, that that free day, and the um, it was it was ninety percent just train nerds uh, and kids hang, taking photos, taking selfies. It's amazing how much the city's kind of embraced what is, you know, it's a train line. We've got other train lines, but this one seems to have uh, seems to have really struck a nerve.
1: Yeah, it's funny when you when you work on something for a really long time, you get quite consumed by it um and really immersed and there's a real danger you sort of lose a bit of perspective but you think about you know the detail even down to where a sign's positioned in a station and you know is that going to work and um the escalator layout the station positioning the train itself and what it's going to feel like and you have a construct in your mind about what it's going to be like and then you think about the community you think oh yeah like i hope they like it like i really hope they do but you never quite know yeah. whether they will it looks um, like they do though <clears throat> But the, the, the um, i mean i got on it on the the sunday um the opening day 26th of may and yeah anxious to see it run well uh but i didn't get off for like six or seven hours
2: <laughs> you were just going yeah, around i circles. just went
1: up and down and jumped off the <laughs> station had a chat with staff and just engaged with the community and just you know really took it in did um, you get
2: stressed out when a couple of the uh there were a couple of moments there I was the stressed beginning. the whole day. I was
1: stressed the whole day <laughs> um, because there's so many moving parts. Yeah. Brand new technology, first in Australia. It's certainly proven overseas, but to put all that together, turn up on a day and then consume it with 140,000 people um, and put it to a test. So, yeah, it had some problems, but the overwhelming feedback from – the community was just a sense of excitement. I met a guy that had flown up from Melbourne, yes. so you'd probably qualify him as a, <laughs> as a train spotter. Yeah, I'd be um, a number one fan. But people from Newcastle, Wollongong, Central Coast, people from around the corner from the station who have been watching the construction for the last, you know, six or seven years. So the cross-section was great. Seeing the kids, the kids on there and thinking that, you know, that kid who lives close by is going to be able to get this train to university, it's going to change their lives.
0: Now, your... Uh your interest in transport and public transport isn't just the those 12 years we read somewhere that um your grandfather worked on the sydney harbour bridge um so civil engineering's in the family
1: yeah he was um uh a, a tradesman basically uh, lived in redfern um with my grandmother you know he'd grown up in redfern so the family sort of got a heritage uh, around the redfern uh waterloo down to Um, botany area and yeah, my grandfather in the depression needed work, was one of those people that climbed up onto the arch, did the hot riveting without any safety or harnesses or anything like that. You know, when you see those old sort of footages, um, he would have been one of those uh, people running around on that steel, you know, uh, making... Uh, a life for himself and getting himself established and yeah it's a unfortunately he died before I was born but um I guess the story carried through my dad who was just really proud that uh his father had been part of you know building something really significant in Sydney
0: and of course the next rail crossing of the harbour is something that was conceived under your watch in the Sydney metro and is now being delivered with the down into the city for the
1: yeah it's um like at a personal level, it's really cool to think that you know back in the nineteen twenties uh my grandfather was working on it, and here we are in the two thousand and twenties essentially when this will get finished um that here I am a hundred years later uh part of of actually doing the next the next big thing uh, one of the 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 things that I guess I got from my dad was because he was so interested in history and also what his father had done like we had a bunch of books around the house on the building of the bridge and the history and all of bradfield's thinking around it all so um i naturally actually became quite immersed in all that um just so you think to, that
0: was the spark that made you oh, interested I, in you
1: in know hi- i think it's a hindsight thing but you know in hindsight i suspect it did
2: uh so you ain't always a train nerd playing with a you know a, a toy train set it's uh it, you'd reckon it was more of a subconscious thing?
1: Yeah, I, I had a train I had a train set, like all good kids, I think, but <laughs> um, I, th- I, it transports my love. I mean, Metro's turned out to be the, the thing that I um, have really got focused on, but I love transport all over all. Overall. I grew up in, in Botany um, at the time when they were extending the third runway in the uh, airport, which seems a long time ago now, but also when they were actually building Port Botany. Yeah. So – I actually saw them you know fill the bay in uh, and put all of that port in so i think between construction transport heavy vehicles and so forth um so you know, i got right into it
0: at what age did you think sort of engineering's where i want to go uh
1: yeah probably teens uh mid-teens i think i, I had a sense of transport and always loved how things fitted together um would always look at that street directory about where the next road was going to get built and all that sort of stuff. I can't say I drew lots of maps about planning out Sydney. I see some kids today and they've got extraordinary intellect, um, in sort of thinking things out, but always really curious about that connectivity in a city. And you know, the old street directories used to have the dotted lines for the next motorway that's going to get built. And I'd always look at those. The county and, of Cumberland. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, some of which we've done since, but yeah.
0: Nearly there. Yeah. F6 has got to be done. Yeah.
1: So you've
2: studied engineering at uni UTS, I think, is that right? Um, and then, um, what then started working and then you were at Arab for, for, is that for like eight years?
1: Is that right? Um, yes, I actually started in local government while I was studying. I ended up going part time. Uh, I had a stint of about nearly a year down in Yass. Got a bit of time in regional New South Wales. Okay. Um, so city boy, uh, had a weekend route on the Hawks. seriously city boy. Boy, didn't really understand regional, but uh, living a year in Yas online was a great experience just to get a sense of uh, what a region's like and that um, was like an engineering <clears> yeah de- yeah yeah basically two other engineers in the council and me so i got to do just about everything um great experience as an undergrad and then i did a bit of time at uh what was cogra council at the time but yeah as soon as i graduated i thought oh, i want to go and try to do something more significant uh a little stint with a, a property development company and then went into arup for for just over a decade uh, which was yeah a sensational sort of life journey you got to work on some big projects sydney olympics uh the, the showgrounds you know the olympics just seeing the complexity of bringing a big infrastructure program together was
2: was great why the jump in after that to back to public sector
1: i think when you get into transport and infrastructure and sort of the public benefit side of it is inevitable and uh, i worked on a few projects at, at arup where we were on the bid side and I, can, I think we had three or four in a row where we bid and lost. And you can bid so many before you start thinking, I actually want to really do one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I think you know, a lot of us go through that in various parts of our career where the, the things just don't quite fall your way. Um, there's a couple of things in that. It wasn't always the engineering that was the determinant. So there was a realization at some point where actually you need to step back and think about the purpose of these things, um, the configuration and the whole business construct. And that was quite a, a sort of big moment for my career in the early 2000s. I went and did a, a master's in finance because I just needed to stretch my thinking. And um, that really helped me just to go, oh, you know, the engineering is really critical, but um, the why you're doing something and the underlying case for it is actually the most critical thing to get right and then work the technical behind it uh so I think the opportunity to sort of look at that through a government lens was why I switched out of Arab and and went into government
0: it's interesting because the the traditional conception of an engineer is they just want to build the best bridge or the you know there's a a problem to solve but does that explain your transition from being a project director to um where it is about delivering the thing that's been decided more towards the uh running a department where you have those bigger questions
1: yeah, I think, actually, I've always been heading in that direction. Um, I, I know when, at, even at university, uh, a couple of my mates from uni were incredibly bright, really skilled at doing big structural analysis, and their careers have gone on to, to be real experts in their field, and the importance of us having those is really critical. But I was always a bit more of the get-behind-why-we're-doing-it type question. Uh, I remember, actually, towards the end of your degree, you get to do a whole heap of electives. Um And I got called in by the Dean of Engineering um, with a bit of a please explain because every elective I chose to do was outside of engineering. It was down in business and arts and communications and he wasn't particularly happy because he thought I should be doing more technical stuff. So I think even then I was actually sort of in my own mind thinking, well, this has been a great degree but I want to do something other than the hardcore technical and I just kept going since then. So even when I ran Metro, yep. The technical stuff was really important but it was as much the people management the communications the engagement your willingness to adapt and it'd be wrong things. to
0: think of metro as a just a project because it's not it's a city shaping yep it's sort of a defining thing for sydney
1: for yeah us. and i think as a team you know when i built the team early on i looked for some really different characters and you know, like a tom jollibrand who was a planner not a builder but would think about the city shaping stuff and threw him into the team and that just took us on a whole different dimension so yeah to me it wasn't about me doing it on my own but finding the right people to really push us around. It's
2: interesting cuz Metro has um Metro has a
1: placemaking role, Sydney Metro Authority,
2: which is new I guess for 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 a, an agency that's ostensibly just uh, a rail delivery or a rail operations entity. Is that uh, do you see that as being more and more of a of a role for the rest of transport to consider to be to, to kind of overlap a lot more with Department of Planning's traditional role?
1: Uh, I don't know where it's overlapping with uh, with plan- Planning's role, but I think it's recognising the, the critical interplay yeah. between um, transport and placemaking. And, the, station the, yeah, place. the station makes the place. Yeah, uh, the station makes the place. If I go out on the northwest at the moment, I go to somewhere like Castle Hill, You actually get a feel for what we're trying to create. There's new development there. There's a shopping centre. There's a a retail strip. Pretty low-scale but all up really good. And then you go to Kellyville. It's still a paddock. Yeah. But you know and now the people have got their head around what that station is, the imagination, getting that urban design right, getting the right retail mix, commercial mix and residential in there and creating something that's actually a a seven-day-a-week all day activity rather than sort of a dormitory commuter in and out early in the morning and back in the afternoon but it's all catalyzed by the station yeah and so i think we're saying transport's got a role to play because if we leave it to market on its own it'll probably go down that path of what's the the quickest way to sell and develop which may end up being all residential and it'll sort of not create the sense of place yeah so we need to and there's some great examples around the world. You know, obviously we've got MTR involved. We've looked at Hong Kong, completely different land use mix and culture, but some of the underlying principles that have been applied there about lead in and, and create a place and some commercial activity in and around the station, and it actually creates a whole new community. You know, we've got a role to play. We don't have to do it everywhere. I think there's places where, um, I mean, for example, Bangaru, we're putting a station in. Another part of government's done the development down there we've done the station but other places where maybe there's not a lot of other government activity going on then you know the metro or transport can lead that um and and i think for the benefit of everyone
2: so you've uh you were mr metro for a long time got made secretary um it's more of a personal question to be honest You've you followed tim reardon into the role tim reardon followed les willinga is there um Something unique about being transport secretary that means you have to be unusually tall.
1: <laughs> uh, obviously, um, it has been a criteria clearly <laughs> in the past. Uh, <laughs> I think my legacy should be that we've got to change that. Criteria. <laughs> I don't find
0: it so striking. He really, is the only person <laughs> I'm very, this to be very an upset issue. about yeah,
1: it. No, it's um, well, there was a little interlude of Dave Stewart as well. That's now, true. Um, oh, that's he, right, he was quite uh, literally there for a fairly short amount of time <laughs> um, and a little bit more short in stature, but he wasn't you know too short. So. Um, look, I, it'd be fantastic to actually have someone with a really different background come in behind me.
2: And height that, and is, the, a, I think, you know, that's an, an important criteria to yeah, change. Yeah.
0: I'm saying there's hope for you in yeah, it. So, but for that <laughs> yeah, current
2: criteria, yeah, okay, maybe so I'd be
1: there. Yes. I'd actually been thinking maybe it would be better to get a woman or something like that, but I'll think about the criteria. There's other height, subsets height. of yes,
2: society that yes. needs to be considered okay. as well.
0: Um, so now you're overseeing the whole cluster, the biggest infrastructure investment program in the country. Um, and you've restructured the department to support that broader delivery program. Can you just briefly talk us through what the, the kind of broad restructuring is? And- yeah,
1: sure. Um, I mean, I should say that uh, it was actually quite a surprise when Tim moved out of transport. You know, I think he'd been in the role, you know, just inside or on two years and everyone around was like – really sort of in behind tim he was driving a lot of energy into the place really pushing in a number of directions um so everyone was busily going along doing their job not thinking about any exit for tim so it was quite a shock when he went went for great reasons uh he's doing a great job where he is now but um personally i wasn't sitting there going yeah i'm gonna be secretary and i've got my plan in the box ready to go even though you're Um, tall yeah, <laughs> even though I was taller. So if anything, I was thinking oh, I'm, a, I'm an outside chance because there's too many tall people in there Um I should say I, I was so surprised. So I remember Tim rang me up um, uh, late one – actually early one morning. He says, oh, I've got to see you today. I've really got to see you. And I said, oh, okay, I'll or, organise things. And he, it was a bit unusual because Tim's you know, pretty calm about things, but it was just like absolutely got to see you and thinking, why does he need to see me today? And the only thing I could think of was that um, that morning I had – caught the train at janelle station um local station they were doing a major refurb on the station and i'd rocked up pretty early in the morning about 5 30. got on the train going about two stations down had to see the transport uh, com- uh patrol staff come through just doing the ticket checking and had a realization that i hadn't tapped on <laughs> <laughs> at the station <laughs> <laughs> so um I was sort of fessed up to him straight away so I think I haven't tapped on and he did a check and he was you know went through the whole process of you get a warning and everything like that. But
2: did he know who <clears> you <throat> were?
1: He had no idea who I was, which was actually pretty good at the time. He, he was uh, very polite and professional and everything. But the only thing I could think of was, when Tim asked me to come in and see him, was that he was actually going to tell, tell me he wasn't particularly happy <laughs> about one of his senior out getting caught not paying his ticket on the, on the thing. Only to tell me that he was actually leaving and he wanted me to step in to be secretary. So. Did you <laughs>
0: right. fess just, up about the fair? No, never, i actually
1: never told him that. So <laughs> never told him that story. But, uh, so just, to, I, I think it just illustrates that. It wasn't on my radar thinking about it so as a result of that i actually spent quite a bit of time for six nine months really just going i really need to do some watching and listening in the role <clears throat> not going and do a, a major change because i just hadn't psychologically thought through hadn't been watching it through that lens even though i've been supporting tim and yeah that was really helpful spent a lot of time out in the regions because i'd obviously been pretty sydney centric with metro Um, met with a lot of staff and stakeholders in the regions and just got into different parts of the business which I hadn't had an opportunity to do. Um, You know, we've got a whole factory out in Western Sydney that crashes cars, you know, on a regular basis to test their safety and just going and talking to the people in there and what makes them tick. You know, it's just a classic little example. And I felt like I'd lived in a shelter workshop by the time I got around the business to understand the dimensions and the diversity of um, skills and passion we've got. But yeah, I did confront um, sort of mid to late 2018 where um, I started to think, I made a few changes um, internally within Transport for New South Wales because a couple of people moved on. Um, And so I just adjusted the structure to get some alignment around that. But I was really thinking about the conversation in the next five to ten years. We'd done a future transport strategy and it pushed a a whole new mantra around end-to-end journey and placemaking and sort of focus on place. And... Um, I had a realisation when you started thinking about things like mobility as a service, if that comes at us in any way and technology comes at us in any way, we are just going to struggle to respond mm. in the best way for customer. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> because we think we, we're we constructed to think mode. Uh, most, most of the people's job is the mandate is to think mode. They're not given mandate to think journey. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> and it, it actually got to the point where I realised it would actually be... Um, remiss of me as lead not to rearrange the organisation to set it up for what I think will be, you know, the next five to ten years. Um, it would have, the easy option for me was to go, oh, I'll just tinker at the edge and I'll leave that for the next person. I don't – I'm not the one to play catch-up. I'm always one to sort of get out in front of a, an issue. And um, <clears throat> so I did a bit of work with, you know, the leadership team around how we should, you know, reshape and rethink and put that proposition to government. And it was really about a, a vision where I want doesn't matter where you are in New South Wales, um, in the you know, next three to four years, ideally with technology um, and private sector and transport together. So I don't really care how it happens, but um, you can want to go from one place to another. You know, I live down the shore. I want to go from home to Parramatta one day and I can look at all my technology, the transport choice end to end. And you know whether it's I want to take my car and it tells me where to park and how long it'll take to me to get to destination, to get in an Uber or other point to point, to taking the train and so forth but not only that while you're in that journey if there's a disruption you're automatically told what you should personally do about it don't wait for the train guard to tell you that the train's not running it'll come in and tell you that's
2: that's an information layer that kind of sits above all the different um, yeah it does but But, but but what what does it what do you think the change will do for um for you know let's hypothetically 2025 there's it's been determined that there's a, a need for some kind of transport intervention between point a and b what's the what's the new structure going to do differently to what we're doing before
1: so trying to get the customer lens to lead the decision making more essentially so while what you say is it's the information lens as soon as you open up that spectrum and that choice set you'll you'll soon establish where the weaknesses are mm-hmm. and where things need to be fixed whereas we don't we tend to look at it through modal solution rather <laughs> than journey solution at the moment we've got really good customer satisfaction on our modes but we don't measure customer satisfaction on by trip. journey yeah and in fact that's where the, where the gaps are so we, we wonder why we're not getting great feedback on transport sometimes and yet we look at our stats and say but our satisfaction is really good whether it's road or or other, and it's the realisation, it's the bits joining it together and maybe some of the missing links the, where the, the gems are for us to make a difference. So um, I think looking at it through the lens of journey uh, and rearranging so that there's more of the organisation's um, uh, basically accountabilities and drive is about the journey and not just about the net, the individual mode is the thing that's going to shift it for us.
2: The um, The integration of Opal Fares, a couple of years ago, which is the, the, the thing that I had a, a tiny bit of involvement in, was has that been a um, a big driver yeah. of that kind of non-mode focus?
1: I, I, I'd go as far as saying I think, think Opal has been the biggest single impact on transport in the greater Sydney metropolitan area. I mean, obviously, regions haven't got it, and that's one of the big questions about how we actually provide something like that for the regions, uh, and we're challenging ourselves to, to find the right solutions for that. But you know, when you think about how easy it is to move around with your Opel Card you now, how much it's taken down the sort of intuitive barriers. You don't leave home thinking, "Oh, but want I change there, how am I going to pay for this?" and and those sorts of things. It just becomes natural. Um, we've seen it in the uh, response. You know, rail's gone from just over 300 to just over 400 million trips in four, four years. Um, we've got more than 800 million public transport trips a year now. It's just. Um, the service quality has been a big part, but I'd say the single biggest catalyst has had to have been over. It just overall.
0: makes it more frictionless to move around. Yeah, but the, the
1: exciting thing that's come with it is that behind it, there's this wealth of data mm. and insight that we never had.
2: Can you talk us through what that's done to your, uh, whether it's service service planning or, or, or maybe project selection? What what impact has that data had on you um, and the way you, you run the, the department today?
1: I think we've only scratched the surface actually in what we're doing with it i mean we've actually got a lot to learn a lot more to do with our own data and also with data of others uh, around but even if you just stick with opal um you know we're we're, as an executive we get a daily dashboard now on what has happened on the network so you immediately get a sense of uh, where things are happening um when we have a major incident on the network now we our analysis is not on the on time train running it's actually on the gate to gate customer travel time you do that against a normal day and you actually see where the impacts were okay what happened what's the lessons what could we have done differently in that incident to have addressed that um type of thing so that to me is a profound shift for us we're even getting to the point now where um as we improve the data feeds it's getting more live so um through a whole heap of algorithms and you know these algorithms are still learning but we'll be getting loads coming through stations we'll be predicting the number of people on a train um, and so we'll have really good sense of the loads on trains. Um, so if we have an incident, then the decision-making can be influenced by where the volumes of people are and the number of people you're affecting rather than just your, your intuition on, on the train.
2: I remember seeing uh, when the data, when when Opal data had really started coming through um, and the transition from from, I guess, however it was it was being collected before it was an order of magnitude change on some of the train lines as far as passenger load or something like some of the train lines overnight went up by 50 percent some went down by 50 percent as far as wh- how many people we thought were on the line i mean it must be
1: so eight years ago the way we we measured um crowding on trains was a couple of times a year we'd go out and someone would stand on a platform yeah at certain locations and they'd make an estimate based on a visual look at the train on how many they thought were on per car and they'd add that up they'd do it a couple of times a year. They'd look at ticketing but the problem with ticketing was you often had a weekly or an annual ticket and if it wasn't a gated station you didn't know where they got on uh, or anything like that. So you were literally flying flying blind. Absolutely flying blind. Um, So you'd be relying on sort of customer complaint through phone calls um, and then going investigating certain things and whereas now like it just seems archaic to think where we were yeah
0: a customer's perspective i I remember using buses on a relatively busy route and, and i would be able to see for sort of three buses away which one was more or less full because that's live feed through to some of the apps and you could make a decision to you know wait out the next couple and and go for the last one i'm interested by what you you briefly mentioned using that data to predict and support decisions from an operational yeah, perspective. Can you maybe just talk us through some examples of where you're thinking that could apply?
1: So we might have an incident somewhere on rail, So say, say north of Sydenham, uh, train on the way to the city uh, causes a delay. Uh, you've got a couple of choices on what you do there. Do you terminate the trains that are going to get stuck or do you re- redirect them around? At the moment, the operators will do that based on what they think historically was the right thing to do, and often pretty good. Um, but what you could do, you know, is say straight away, give me a dashboard on the number of people on this line versus another line. Uh, what sort of loadings have we got on the trains? Um, how are we going to disrupt the least number of people? So maybe the line that's got less people on it is the is the line we choose to terminate trains at a station mm-hmm. and get them to change yeah, onto okay. the other other line. So you so can you can, make, a, you can actually make sort of decisions on the run informance by where your customers are not just where your trains are. Is and there any
2: opportunity in the same with the same data and the same uh, effectively the same incentives to move customers around as well? To shift demand not just supply?
1: Yeah, look I think that's that could be another sort of generation of thinking about how we start to encourage people with the information we've got, put information in their hands. Uh I don't know whether you know, but and this is not all us. I think one of the things I love is we're partnering with the Mastercards and the Googles of this world and the telcos around their data sets and saying how can we put our various data sets together and get better insights to what's happened in the past, but also what's happening live on the network. So I can, to me, that we're just at the – I think we've only just opened the door because we've not had it yet. we've had the peak pricing
2: on trains for for a long time, but that's only one way to. To, to incentivize certain behaviors, there's with the data that you have now, you could target all kinds of incentives if if that if people were open to it.
1: Um, so one of the, the little uh, ideas that we've heard floated around recently is particularly now that we've gone to contactless, where you don't even need an Opal card. Um, you can use your credit card or your phone to tap on you know, via a credit I card. Use my watch. Yep, good call. Good call. I, the first day that it turned on, I used my watch at Jenali Station just to make sure it was working. Um, Four fifty yeah. in the morning. to checked it, and because <laughs> when the minister
2: tried it with his with his phone, he had to go through the gate four or five times, didn't he? It There's
1: always teething issues. There's always teething <laughs> issues, particularly when you put a minister out. <laughs> to do yeah. They exclusively um, yeah. happen when the
0: ministers there. Yeah. It's yeah. the same as water restrictions in Sydney. You Always announce them, and then it starts raining that's, that's the next brilliant. day. It's yeah. the same with with Opal cards. If you know yeah, it. but
1: just to give you a window of, uh, where you know some of the because essentially the payment providers are thinking with that. So, so we've got a sporting event at Homebush. Um, one of our issues is the loads coming in and out of Mm. that. Um, and everything that, uh, we can do to spread that load, maybe over a two to three hour period rather than that sort of peak bumping. So if you've got a situation where, um, say card merchants can create incentives in the payment discount to come in earlier, maybe, um, drive people into merchandise stores or into food shops. If you get there by a certain time, you get a discount type of stuff, you can actually change behavior without government imposing a different fare regime. Absolutely. You can actually do it through other commercial incentives and so forth. And all we are is basically the payment system and then they can lay over the top and do what they wish. So we, we'd we love to see that sort of innovation. But to me, that's just a, like a sample. I wouldn't take that one too literally. It just gives you an idea of the sort of thinking that's out there now.
0: It's a fine example because you've also got the, the payment platform to have much richer information about. Uh, and so the, the, the master cards and amex of the world they know your home address they'll often know who your employer is so what your work address is you you can see that they have a much broader picture and your spending habits that they can yeah. they can use to influence people in a much more micro that's
1: right that's right, right. the the other big area that data's gone for us is just the visibility of uh, what's going on on our network um you go into your management centers and you're often flying blind about where your trains were or your buses were and so forth but um yeah, we've done a lot of work in terms of operating system technology to be able to monitor that and that's turned itself into what I what I think is uh, a sensational platform of real-time data for customers.
0: So th- that's the real-time and operational piece. Presumably it's giving you rich data for then planning as well and
1: Yeah, absolutely because we can we get much better sense of performance so you can look at before, you know, when we were tracking buses, you know, there'd just be someone occasionally going out and doing spot checks at certain locations about where the buses were turning up on time. Now you can get a data dump of every bus, every route, and start looking for systematic problems in a, in a route and what's causing problems and going in and either doing a physical intervention, changing timetable, re-routing buses. You know, the, uh, the amount of data we've got there, I think actually at the moment, our issue is not the amount of data, it's how we mine it, it, use it, make the most of it, uh, which we've got to learn to do better.
2: So you've um you're over you've you've entered at a period when New South Wales is investing more in transport than in- probably it probably ever has. Organisations changed from uh, operations to a much much more delivery focused organisation. Is that h- How's that change been? How's how, how have you how has that changed the organisation and what you know, is that going to continue do you think?
1: Oh, look transport's gone through a Um, a major change in the last eight years or so. I think we went from a very disparate set of organisations into really bringing the public transport piece together in a strong way and getting roads to a much more aligned sort of position. Um, So that transport cluster in New South Wales, I think, has paid enormous dividends Um, and I think we've got it's not just about the big build. Uh, I mean, I'm an engineer. I love, I love a uh, construction site as good as the next person, if not more. Uh, but uh, I think particularly in the last year running Transport, I've kind of realised that some of the coolest things we can do for customers are smart technologies you overlay, just thinking differently about how we use our assets and our systems. Not that Transport's got all the solutions, but you know, there's an industry globally that is thinking pretty creatively here. Um, we want to be part of that journey and be pretty much at the forefront, certainly in Australia.
2: There is a, a, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of opportunity to use, to, to use the existing infrastructure that we have, um, a bit more effectively rather than always building more. Cause I mean, the, if, if everything that's coming online now, um, if we keep going at this pace, the OPEX implications for the budget are pretty enormous, um, Do you think there's much room for more growth in the networks under current settings?
1: Oh, I think there's always more opportunity for growth, uh, probably more targeted as part of the the change that we're doing in transport. Now we're bringing sort of transport for New South Wales, which has sort of had the oversight of planning and and the public transport piece. We're bringing that together with roads. And the reason for that is the roads are such a critical part of of the system and I think increasingly... Um, the more aligned they are, the better. So very positive about bringing those sort of functions together so we can make the most of the overall transport asset base and trade off the various things. I think the investment pipeline in Sydney and New South Wales can, needs to continue. Uh, it's very aggressive at the moment. I think it'll be seen as a golden era in in you know the history books, a golden era. So will it continue at this rate? No, probably not. But... Um, I don't see it stopping soon um, in the very short term. I'd say the next five years or so is still going to be really – five to ten years is still very significant investment. What I want to make sure we do with that investment but is – I think there's a huge onus on us not to just continue to roll more of the same. Yeah. Um, When you're spending billions of dollars, there's a massive onus on us to push ourselves to bring the next generation of technology and customer service and so forth in. Personally, that was the big catalyst in Metro. Was we could have gone and you know respected the legacy system and kept expanding that, or we could you know be a bit brave um, and take the new technology path. So
2: other than operationally, because we know you know it's a metro single deck, lots of doors, turn up and go. What, what does it do? Um, how does it compare to the Sydney Trains network in terms of costs, in terms of um, reliability, etc.?
1: the 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 challenge with the city trains network is it's really complicated and tangled together so whenever you get an issue in one area um it cascades across the network so that's the big challenge is how we simplify that the 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 benefit of going to metro um, is with the automation it brings a massively higher level of reliability um a, a much higher or faster response time to an incident so incidents still will happen on these railways but the ability to respond really quickly because you're not trying to arrange a whole heap of people behind the scenes to make it happen you can pull these things out of uh a storage area along the line somewhere and and intervene on an incident really quickly with the automation the screen doors is the is the new new thing for Sydney. you know just can't get on that station and get your way onto that track um as a parent you know or you know that's just a profound shift so yeah more efficient um yeah it's definitely got an efficiency to it i'd say the thing that i i most like about it is it's freeing up staff to do something different Mm -hmm. there's still staff on metro i think that's one of the slight illusions sometimes but the staff are actually more focused on the customer because the technology is doing the safe operation piece and they're a backup to that and their day job is to focus on customer whereas in the sydney train system because of the legacy the driver necessarily and you know great drivers uh, that we've got have to focus on the safe operation and therefore haven't got the time for the customer so it's just a different approach
0: so sydney's rail future is single deck metro do you think there'll be an an expansion of the the double deck network or will all future rail lines in sydney be
1: i'd see I, i see metro as um the future for putting rail into new areas um i think uh, the technology, um, the capacities uh, that it brings the reliability, the speed, um, it is the future. But it, yeah, and you know, Howard Collins and I talk about this often, it is not at the cost of a continued investment in our existing Sydney Trains Network. That doesn't just mean replacing the trains that we've got, but that means as we replace the signalling systems, go to the new generations, bring a level of technology and automation in there so we get more reliability. We need to do both because um, the Sydney Trains system will remain a critical backbone of transit
0: so you see things like converting more of the existing lines to be more similar to the metro service or just upgrading
1: um i, I think they'll become more metro like uh we've already got in arguably in some of the lines like the eastern suburbs line now um so t4 the northern end of t4 line is essentially a metro service now um put a bit of technology in there still have a driver, um, but really more as a backup to the safety system and let the train do more of the driving itself. And you can see those sorts of things coming uh, without a doubt, and customers will benefit uh, with it. What do you think that's gonna do to cost recovery? I think it helps with cost recovery, no question at all. Um, It's not the underlying driver for doing it. I guess that'd be the point I'd make is that we are trying to take a pretty customer-centered view. There's pretty big capital costs up front on these Metro systems, let's not kid ourselves. But um, I think the most significant changes the customer benefit the speed uh the reliability that you're getting and the the higher capacity so as the as people develop around it just the more you can get out of that system is where the benefits come Um, obviously with automation there are lower costs that ultimately come over the longer term and you know we shouldn't shy away from that because it is about the, the service but it's not the starting point not the starting point for doing metro so
0: when you've spoken a few times in our conversation about um sort of a the developing future of infrastructure with things like mobility as a service and end-to-end journeys and automation on trains and and there's many other areas. Um, Each of those seems like an opportunity to do reform alongside them. So um, the on-demand trials that you're doing, there's opportunities there for greater integration, things like having different types of operators in the transport system. Yeah, I think what what
1: we're seeing is almost a sort of couple of types of transport emerging um you have sort of longer distance trunk service provision um you know in a metropolitan area and i think this even does apply in in regional settings as well um so whether it's sydney trains metro light rail bus such as b line you know just turn up and go frequent longer distance really reliable journeys um and building a network out around that. And I think Sydney's still got a way to go in creating that, whether it be Metro or more bus routes, um, dedicated corridors and so forth. Um, some of it can be uh, you know, built around the motorway network as well, but you can see from a public transport point of view um, that the trunks will be really critical. But I don't think that in itself is gonna cut it. I think the the innovations and the things that excite me most are around the more localized connectivity that we can mm, yeah. generate um, through point-to-point, through uh, on-demand buses, through changing the way we think about our existing um, existing bus services that we've got. and How that's those where on-demand buses gone? Uh, so we've done about 12 pilots. We've gone everywhere from unbelievably successful to no one was really interested in yeah. using. It's why we call them a trial. <laughs> uh, and I have to say, one of the things I've really been impressed by uh, the organisation that I'm leading now is their willingness to go... We're not quite sure what the solution here is let's give it a go let's yeah. not spend three years doing a back of room analysis on it let's yeah. be a bit brave get out with the market present the challenge we've got and then people come back with ideas and that's where i think the on-demand is probably a, a window to the future on how we should do business the thing that excites me about that agile transport is that i think it's less about transport necessarily running the services but more about creating the environment for um, you know, private providers to be able to get in there and, and sort of fill the gap on that. And then it's, I think the, the challenge would be from a technology point of view, work out the payment mechanisms, the subsidy regimes and all those sorts of things to be able to generate the right market.
2: So why, why, why is it needed? So I know that there's, uh, there's a few regions where they're running, there's separate buses. If you're aiming for a private sector-led um, rollout of these services, why is it needed over and above the existing point-to-point services that are available?
1: Uh, I think it's a question of how those markets might um, I don't think collide but sort of cascade into each other over Mm -hmm. time. I don't have the solution at the moment. I think um, various businesses are experimenting and and that might be the next generation for us is to look at a sample area somewhere where on-demand bus has been successful and say, so the service concept is successful but is there a different way? Maybe we need to look at our existing bus network with the on-demand, with some of the point-to-point providers uh particularly the point-to-point providers that are doing um i guess multi-user trips mm-hmm. and is there a is there a different construct that we can trial now which is a bit more about the area as a whole and a, a sort of an overall packaged service offer a lot a lot of the bus operators and others around the world are sort of starting to look to that rather than just saying oh yeah we run big buses with 60 people on them they're going no no the market in front of us has been disrupted and there you can see them trying to adapt, but there's new entrants coming in too, which is you know, to me really cool.
0: And um, just to drill down a bit, have you got a sense of between that spectrum of really being really successful and nobody using them, are, are there some defining features of why the ones have been successful versus not?
1: It's sometimes the, the, the service around which, um, they're actually operating so you know a couple have been successful northern up on the northern beaches we've had a really successful one it's sort of built itself around beeline and so beeline has created a situation where you've got a more end-to-end trunk service uh, and a different type of bus feeder service so it's a bit more like a train line in the way you imagine it as a customer and it's created that sort of last mile issue to resolve and so i think it's filled a gap in in that um, down in the Shire we've had a really successful one as well uh, in southern Sydney and, and it's once again built around a really good sort of trunk yeah, system
0: okay. uh, that's there. Is it's it ca- people that otherwise would be driving and instead of getting to the station or is it?
1: Yeah, we still haven't done enough research to really get to the bottom of that. I mean ideally it's people that have, that have been driving or it's people that weren't were actually driving a long way and weren't even getting on transit in the first yeah, place okay. would be best case scenario. but. Uh, yeah
0: so perhaps someone who would, would otherwise have driven into the city is instead
1: yeah yep, absolutely that, that would be sort of best case scenario in terms of congestion management to have got them onto the train but even driving to the station and having an alternate you know, given how crowded we are around our stations for space
2: so another uh another uh potential form of congestion management which we've mentioned probably on every episode in this series <laughs> is maybe some form of price incentive or, or any kind of incentive to avoid congested areas. Um, can you see any, particularly particularly with the rise of these point-to-point uh, services, which in some cities have been found to be adding to congestion, um, can you see any path to that being considered in, in Sydney, whether it's a road pricing mechanism or just a discrete congestion charge, anything like that?
1: Uh, look, I think as the head of the transport agency for New South Wales, you've got to be pretty sensitive to the government's view that cost of living is a really high priority. So, uh, whatever we, whatever government decides to do from policy point of view, I think is going to have a really tight focus and lens on that. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't make changes to charging. You know, I think we need to always challenge ourselves around that, and certainly in the in the service provision space. Um, I think that there's definitely scope for, for changes in charging structures. And you know, if we move to a, a more mobility as a service type thing where more private operators are in there, then there's scope to bring that in. One of the challenges in that space is, I think from a social equity point of view, we'll need yeah. to look at some sort of subsidy regime. Now, we spend a lot of money on transport services at the moment. Maybe it's about redistributing some of that so that those that are more disadvantaged, the subsidy goes through their payment rather than to the operator. Um, so I can see some some opportunities there. Uh, I think more on the sort of the road based transport. Um, maybe one channel through there is uh, if we've got more service providers on the road, then charging for the service provision um, is actually a, a mechanism. So it's sort of a layer behind the co- the consumer. Um, so you, but know, you mean like an Uber or an Uber Yeah, or that's right.
0: F- so, so, Cause, that, cause so that's that, what's that happened.
2: Be. That's what's happened in New York just now. They've it's uh, been led by Uber and Amazon, I think. They've introduced a con- or they're, they're introducing a congestion charge and that's been supported by them because they, you know, the benefit is very discreet to them. They can do their work,
1: you know. And I, I think the big criteria for all of us in this space, but is that it has to start with the consumer benefit. So, what's the consumer benefit yeah. first and what's the value of that? And if you can demonstrate that, then there's a conversation to be had. Absolutely. About why you're putting that charge where it is. If it's just an imposed cost without an eye to the benefit that's coming to the consumer then i think it'll just be seen as a tax and it'll be called out that way and the cost of living issues immediately come in front of you so um yeah there's obviously conversations around the decline in the revenue that we're going to see in the in the road space as well clearly that's going to be a big issue how you deal with the electric vehicle uh charging regime yeah absolutely someone's got a lead on that it's hard for us from where we sit to be the leader on that i think Uh, We do i don't want to pass the buck i guess you know ideally it's a commonwealth-led thing given the way taxes are imposed at the moment but if it's not then we'll have to confront it in some form at some point because otherwise the revenue base for transport across australia is significantly undermined
2: i mean you 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 are in some ways confronting it with the expansion of toll roads i mean it's it's the charge is discreet to those roads but the with the next stage of West Connects opening, that you know, there's a, a big chunk of Sydney is going to have a distance-based charging regime. Um it, it, How how much? I mean, without a without a, a more network-wide approach, how many more of the toll roads can but, we but really? It's not
0: distance-based, is it? It's facility-based. It's the it's the cost of delivering. That's that- right just just a for piece that of infrastructure
2: just for the distance is just for that particular piece of infrastructure so as a it's-
0: supplementary question to Elias, do you think there's ever any potential to look at renegotiating some of those uh, given the ownership structure of those roads to think about them more on a best for network basis rather than the cost of designing building operating maintaining financing that piece of road
1: i'd like to think that um the players and the operators that are in this market are in it um, as sort of transport organisations that want to make changes in cities. And if that's why they're there, then they're going to be open-minded around it. Obviously they're going to want to work out how they maintain or increase their returns on respect of that. But um, if you're just going with a leave us alone type mentality, I don't see that, but I, th- no, I think while whatever they've got a view about their HIV to help shape a city, then their doors will be open to those sort of conversations. I'm pretty pretty optimistic that they would be.
0: So if you think about pricing across within your portfolio now, you've got RMS, <coughs> you're the, um, the 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 letter of those concessions, if you like, um, and you've got the transport, the public transport piece. You do have some levers to a greater or lesser extent across the whole pricing of the transport network. Can you see a, a more integrated approach to deciding what those prices are and what the price paths should be?
1: Oh, I can over time. Uh, I think we'll t- spend a little bit of time just getting our head around the collective, and I think um, the reality is, and this is you know really what your last question was about, is that there are some impediments or challenges because you know, um, it was built through a certain lens at a certain time. A lot of the pricing regime, and you know, it was initially, oh, we want to build a road, we can't, we can't quite afford it, and how about we levy the users of it, and then the network's incrementally been built around that. Okay and we've got a system of charging on the basis of that. Um, It's very hard to to tweak that. You've actually got to fundamentally reform that aspect of it. But that combined with what we're trying to do with mobility more generally, I think absolutely it's on us to keep challenging, finding the models and looking around the world about how else they're doing it and what
0: can we adopt here. I just want to talk about electric vehicles just briefly. Um, And it's not the question you're expecting to be asked about how you price for electric vehicles. It's more about the convergence between the transport sector and the energy sector. And I'm interested in the conversations you're having across government, um, federal and and, and state level, about what kind of impact there's going to be from things like electric vehicles, plugging into electrical grids, what that means for planning, etc. I was just interested to know if there's work happening to support that transition.
1: And when you look at the whole of transport, we are a pretty heavy energy provider already, if you think about rail. Um, So we've got some... Two or
2: three percent of the state's demand, I think. Yeah,
1: and uh, one of the things we did on Metro is uh, Northwest is fully renewable energy supply uh, or energy offset for for that project. So we're sort of more playing in an opportunistic way at the moment, if I'm honest. I don't think we've got a considered plan. Um, I'm intrigued to see where it goes and how much the fully electric vehicle becomes the the winner, um, I guess it'd be nice to get a bit of steer from, from the builders of, of vehicles and the sellers of vehicles about how that's going to land because that'll significantly influence what sort of infrastructure. Um, but I would say I, I'm sitting here and perhaps I'm to say like I'm turning my back on the problem, but the government doesn't provide the service stations for petrol. Um, you know, at the same time, I don't see transport providing the backbone electric infrastructure for um, the, the cars either. Uh, I think we certainly need to work with the um, energy industry about where we see the demands being. But I do see it a pretty market led approach. And in a way, Australia is different to Singapore because Singapore is so tight and contained. And yet, you go to Australia, we're so stretched. I think that's where the solutions may be a bit different in different geographies.
2: Have you looked at it, uh, or is it attractive enough yet to be looked at for uh, city buses?
1: Um, yeah, we've got some trials uh, which we've announced uh, in the eastern suburbs. Um, on some buses so it is a bit of a toe in the water
0: fully electric
1: um, yeah fully electric buses so we so yeah about 10 or 12 buses i think right um we're, we're going to give a go um in the near future so that was a actually an election commitment from this government
0: and they're lithium ion batteries oh you're ahead of
1: me on the technology there mm-hmm.
0: they're not can, hydrogen though
1: they're, no they're not they're hydrogen like no, no no um so so fully electric the yeah i think that's a good experiment we we've got a be more prepared to experiment in some of these areas you know, some jurisdictions are really brave and just make the decision they're going uh i think we're, we're a bit more cautious we we found the gas buses for example which were the big thing back in the 90s probably not to be as good as we had liked so there's a little bit of caution about you know leaping too quickly into a technology so we'll do a good trial um, and if it proves to be something that it's got a good sort of life cycle for buses, you know, I can see a lot more of it happening, particularly in the inner areas.
2: There's a fascinating stat from Bloomberg that the the rollout of battery of electric buses in China, because they're driven just so much, has had more of an impact in removing oil demand than ought, than the complete um, use of electric cars around the world. Just the buses have removed something two or three hundred thousand barrels a day of oil demand out of the out of the system. So it's You know, there's, they have a a big impact on energy consumption and, but yeah, they have to be cost effective or else it's.
1: Yeah. uh, I think one of the other things for us is there's some, some big amenity benefits. Yeah. Uh, Just the the noise uh, in the inner city areas. Um, So it's not just looking at it straight through the the dollar uh, lens or the practicality. I think making sure we look at some of those sort of externalities is pretty important too.
0: And more broadly, just the the challenges in the construction sector that we hear a lot about at the moment with a lot of government projects that are maybe a bit over time, over budget, or there's risks that have crystallized. you just give us your sense of what's happening there? Um, and is it just a it's a blip or this is it a longer-term problem?
1: Now that it's settled. <laughs> uh, well, you know, you've got New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, New Zealand, all coming together at similar times, making massive investments in motorways, railways, um, yeah, whether it be heavy rail, light rail, and that, that's really big. It's putting a lot of pressure on the construction market. Um, I think the biggest danger we face is if we overheat the market too much and we have some companies not be able to get through that, then that, that'll be a really big issue. So I think there's a fair bit on all of the, the government side delivery agencies. And this is not just in transport, actually. It does go across into some of the, the other sectors that government involved in just to get the balance of that right. Um, Because we, you know, certainly we're very mindful of it. We're really engaged with the private sector on how we sort of manage that. Uh, We're trying to be more deliberate about the way we place various projects in the market, the timing of that relative to other projects that we've got on foot, but also what's going on across Australasia, really. Um,
0: If I can be mildly provocative, I find it quite striking at the moment that we've just opened the northern part of Sydney Metro, which was an integrated... um, privately financed project, obviously publicly funded, but privately financed it, uh, and an integrated product. And the, the reaction appears to be in some quarters to move to less integrated procurement methodologies. So I think about Parramatta like rail, for instance. We've got one that worked that was well integrated, used private finance, was delivered um, well and, and ahead of budget. Uh, are we in danger of a uh, pendulum swinging so far that we end up with a whole Different set of integration problems rather than the um, the ones that we've we've seen emerge through some projects.
1: Oh, we are in danger of that, I th- but I think you need to make sure that when you look at each project, you do look on it on its merits and you learn the lessons. And I think the the logic behind where we are in Parramatta is probably a blend of the lessons out of Sydney Light Rail and Newcastle Light Rail, which were probably at two ends of the spectrum around. to approach we break down newcastle light rail and managing contractor type approach for the sort of below ground works in this in the cbd light rail ppp Yet a lot of risk underground Um, and so i think for Parramatta, a caution obviously that we would take uh, whereas if you look at metro um, once you get behind the fence on metro you can contain the risk much more and you can be much more in control uh, of what you're doing. So there's a, a logic as to why you continue the, the PPP in that space. Um, we've just got to look at each one on their merits. Uh, I, I and I know the government remains really open to you know privately financed projects, but we want them to be the ones where the private sector can be confident about their risk profile and government can be as well and maybe like rails at the moment until we learn a bit more about them and not the ones.
2: You've, um, you've got kind of a clean slate in your in the role now you started not long before the election and and um, government's just been returned what's uh, what what are your priorities for the next uh, for the next few years what do you think what kind of direction do you think you're going to take the department in what kind of projects are you going to be focusing on or, or innovations
1: i think there's a couple of big things are uh, really coming through we've got actually a lot of projects in flight that are, are due to be opened over the next couple of years um, whether it be you know, metro that's just opened, the Sydney Light Rail, uh, West Connects One B, and then subsequent stages of West Connects are going to flow through. Um, North Connects will open, moving out into the regions. Um, we'll all go get a Ballina Pacific Highway, so suddenly we've got dual carriageway end to end for the first time, uh, which will be just a massive uh, boon for the for the North Coast and that sort of freight moving up and down the coast. So, making sure that as we bring all of those things into operation. We absolutely push ourselves to realise the, the benefits around those and, and get the most out of those. Um, steaming in, with, behind that, we've got a whole series of uh, projects under development from Western Harbour Tunnel, F6, Beaches Link, um, City and Southwest Metro in, into delivery, City Metro West. Just full dance um, it's, there's, there's, there's a lot going on uh, in the regions um, with the, the Pacific Highway job getting largely done. Uh, a real focus now for the government on Great Western and Princess Highways. Um, not necessarily to the same standard, but really wanting to get the safety outcomes on those corridors. So, uh, you know, in an investment pipeline, you know, that traditional civil infrastructure investment pipeline, uh, there's a real onus on us to work with industry and get the balance of that right and, and get jobs finished, get the next, next round of projects in the market. Um, probably as we do those, I think, uh, We're into the next generation of project development and sort of working with communities in a more engaged way than perhaps, you know, what we've done sometimes in the past. There's some good lessons for us out of doing that better in the years ahead and I know um, government's really keen for us to continue to push ourselves. Getting above that big build piece but I think and going back to that organisational sort of change piece, it really is about, for me, changing the thinking in the the business around a focus on end-to-end journey. Um, And probably creating more of a balance between, we have to deliver the service, versus throwing it out the door to a global industry to say to them, we've got this problem with how we move people in this area, let's try and work out some solutions to it, Um, rather than feeling that we've just got to go and contract a a particular service in. So I'd like to see in the next few years, we've got some real runs on the board where we've been able to achieve that in some areas and creating some momentum
0: around it. So we're probably coming towards the end of our time. I, um, I've asked all of our guests this, um, what's your favorite sort of infrastructure and why? Oh, that's unfair.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Favorite sort of infrastructure has got to be my Metro, of course. uh, I had a feeling I knew what the answer would be, but yeah, you don't spend 12 or 13 years of your life on something. and say, "Oh, yeah, something else is my favorite, you know, let's be honest, but, uh, it's a, it's a bit unfair, but it's like asking who's your favourite child, Adrian. You know, <laughs> when you run the whole of transport in New South Wales, um, yeah, it's the thing that strikes me is there are so many moving parts. Um, the really unique thing about being in leading transport uh, in a role like this is you touch every person every day in some form. Um, and it's an enormous obligation, an enormous privilege to. Sit in a role like this and have that level of impact on people. When we get it wrong, we get the feedback, and so we should. Um, when we get it right, we get the sort of reaction we got on Metro recently, which is you know really exciting and sort of you know you're, you're making a difference. Has that um, ever so- surprised
2: you? How much feedback you get in transport that you don't necessarily get in other other sectors? Just like armchair experts like Adrian and I, are a dime a dozen. And there's, I've, I've my work has been in transport and energy, mostly. And energy, even though it gets a lot of attention, there's never as much expertise, let's say, in the public.
1: So all that says to me is we are incredibly relevant Absolutely. to people's lives. So, yeah, there's the odd time where you, you rock up to a barbecue and you think, I just could do with some downtime today. <laughs> and sure enough, within 10 minutes, it turns to transport and we're yeah. into it and we're onto yeah. it. And I'm always up for the conversation. Uh, but it's because... It's such an integral part of people's lives, and increasingly so. I mean, go back 50 years. How much do people move around in their lives? How much more mobile are they now? Why is that? Because we've adapted and changed, and we're giving them more than what they had. Never enough, of course, uh, but continue to push ourselves to do more. So, yeah, it's if I had to choose between you know, health, education, transport, and those sorts of things, you know, where else, clearly, where else would you want to be? Um, So I'd I'd rather pick that sort of answer, even though Metro is my little fave there, Adrian. I I think I'd rather say it's just that transport. First amongst equals. Yes.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, that's a great note to finish on. Rod Staples, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Rod. Cheers. So that was our chat with Rod Staples. Ilya, what do you think? Certainly lives and breathes transport, doesn't
2: he? I was uh, was pretty taken by not just how open-minded he is about the future of the transport sector, but also how willing he is to act on that understanding. A new secretary could reasonably be expected to lay low for a while, but seems to have jumped at the opportunity, first chance he got with the repositioning to focus on, on place and journey.
0: Certainly seems to me that New South Wales is well served by having Rod involved in any transport role and even more so as the secretary. So it was great to have him on. For now, that's our chat with Rod Staples. As always, we encourage you to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you can and send us your feedback either to us individually or to the Inside Infrastructure LinkedIn page. There are many more episodes coming soon, so we encourage everyone to subscribe as well so you get notified. The show can be found by searching Inside Infrastructure on any of your favorite podcast applications. For today, thanks to Rod Staples for coming on the show and Ilya, as always, for hosting with me and PwC Australia for their continued support. Inside Infrastructure is an Infrastructure Partnerships Australia podcast sponsored by PwC Australia. This episode was produced by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC's media agency. Research was conducted by Michael Player, Mitch Dudley and Linda Bergerson. Past episodes can be found on the Inside Infrastructure page at both Infrastructure Partnerships Australia and PwC, as well as on SoundCloud. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts
2: from.